Jesus, we give you our hearts. We give you uh, our attention. Lord, we, we are called to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we can only do this when we first respond to your love. So Lord, we, we want to acknowledge that we don't even understand how you could love a person like us. We don't even get it that you think on us enough to name and, and, and know each of the hairs on our head. It's bizarre. It's, it's greater than our heart and our mind can conceive. But Lord, we want to believe it first. And Lord, in doing that, I pray that we would love you with our attention, our mind, and all our strength as we sit here today and learn of your word. Please speak to us. Please be all that we need today. Amen. Amen. I'm going to start with a verse from Proverbs, chapter 6, verse 26. It says, For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. When you think of a crust of bread... What are the attributes of that crust of bread? Shout it out. Hard, dry, leftover, stale, crumbly, moldy, unwanted. All right? A man is reduced to a crust of bread by a harlot. That's what the Word of God says. Any man who decides to hook up, that's what he is doing to his soul. That sucks. You don't want that in your life, all right? When I was in Bible college, okay, we, we were always t- telling each other, the guys, you know, we, we, we want to pray. We were like, we got to find ourselves a woman, you know, but not just any woman. We wanted a Proverbs 31 woman, right? You guys know the Proverbs 31 woman. She she works really hard and takes care of her husband, just does everything right, always honors him, just a great, great woman, right? But sometimes one of us would get a girlfriend and, and the, the brothers would get together and we'd have our little devotion and say, brother, you got the other Proverbs woman. <laughs> the other Proverbs woman. And that's this woman, this adulterous woman that would reduce him, not, not give him life and pour in sweetness and joy and and love into his life, but would suck out of him all the moisture and reduce him to a crust of bread, just dry, worthless, unwanted. I like those words. That was good. Well, Satan has these women, these other Proverbs women, all over the place. He, he hides them in your life. He puts them everywhere. They're on the street corners, but they're in the next cubicle They're all over the place. And we need to be watching out for these bait women that he has on his fishing hooks, okay? Speaking of bait, why didn't Noah take or do much fishing on the ark? Because he only had two worms. (laughs) Fish are awesome, though. Did you hear about the fight at the seafood restaurant? Two fish got Battered. I wanted to say blattered, but <laughs> battered is what I was. I said it right. <clears throat> okay. So, go ahead and open now to Genesis thirty-nine. Genesis chapter thirty-nine, verse six. We did the first five verses last week. We learned about Joseph being a childlike follower of God, a childlike servant. And the sermon was called A True Child Life. And man, it just really blessed us, I think. Really blessed me. I've been thinking about just being a child before God all week long. And I heard two really amazing stories this week. Uh, so you have to go ask Norm about his story about childlike faith this week. And Spencer about his story about childlike faith. So Spencer's not here. But you should all call him and text him and say, A, why are you in church? And B, Tell me about your childlike faith prayer to God that gave you an elk. I even wore this tie in honor of Spencer. <laughs> he shot an elk. It was crazy. So I, I wore my tie. And he's not even here. And I'm giving him a hard time. <laughs> anyway, that's not what will happen to you. Don't worry. <clears throat> if you don't come to church. All right. So in Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 6, he says, 
Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. This is speaking of Potiphar, who Joseph is now serving as a slave. And he did not know what he had except for the bread that he ate. Joseph was taking care of everything. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It's funny how the Bible is, uh, is very clear about how people look sometimes. You know, first of all, we see that Joseph, you know, he's, he's been faithfully ministering uh, to Potiphar. He trusted Joseph with everything, and he didn't for a moment think that Joseph was going to betray him because he saw that Joseph answered to a higher authority, just like Hebrew National Hot Dogs. <laughs> Have you seen those commercials? We answer to a higher authority, right? Okay, because they don't put pork. That's kosher. If you didn't get it, that's... Well, Joseph, Joseph served God first. That was his higher authority. And, he, and he, so he, then he served Potiphar. And Potiphar was reaping the benefits of Joseph serving God. And you might think, well, why would Potiphar get the benefits? Well, that's how God wanted it to work. God wanted Joseph to bless Potiphar. And then it says Joseph was handsome. You know, the Bible is so honest about the way people look. David and Absalom are both called beautiful in the Bible. But David also had a beard. So I think there's this equation between beauty (laughs) and beards. That's just the way I think. Leah was, we're told that she was really ugly, right? Rachel was really beautiful. Well, beauty is not wrong. So, you know, wanting to look good isn't sinful. Um, you know, there was this woman who came up to this very, cons- it was in a real conservative church, and she came up to the pastor and said, is it, is it wrong for me to wear makeup? And the pastor looked at her with a very solemn look, very serious. And he said, woman, if the barn needs painting, paint it. But it's not the most important thing. Looking, being beautiful is not the most important thing, all right? Because uh, we learn in 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll just to share with you 1 Peter 3, verse 3. He says, Do not let your adornment, speaking of women, be merely outward, arranging of the hair and wearing gold and putting on fine apparel. Notice he's not forbidding those things. He's just saying don't let it be merely those things. He says, verse 4, Rather let it be of the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of the Lord. The church needs to be mindful of each other first. Like the early church decided to wear robes. Do you know why the priest wore robes way back in the day? I'm talking like the first century, second century. The priest decided to wear robes because the poor people that were in church couldn't afford nice clothes. And so they wore robes. And so the rich people wore fancy trousers and clothes and stuff like that. And the poor people felt uncomfortable. So what happened is the priests are like, you know what? We want to love all the people. So we're going to put on robes too to identify with the poorest among us so that we can all, that they'll feel comfortable. It was a very wonderful act of love. Well, Joseph, he's the guy that just woke up Perfect hair, tan, muscles. You know, hardly even had to wear a shirt because it's Egypt. It's rippling, right? But he also had a deep spiritual purity. And that's what we've seen in Joseph's life, right? He's this picture of Jesus for us. He's always picturing how Jesus is. All right? Now, look at verse 7. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife... So this is Potiphar's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. All right, so typically, if Potiphar was serving in Pharaoh's inner court, he would be a eunuch. All right, so, and if you don't know what that is, go ask your mom or dad. But he would be a eunuch, and so his wife wasn't necessarily enjoying that. So as they progressed in their life, they got this reputation, Egyptian women did, of being very immoral and having other relationships all around. That was the reputation of these Egyptian women. So this woman cast these longing eyes on Joseph, and she says, lie with me. Very blunt, right? 
But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has into my hand. There, there is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. So going back to just the beginning of that little phrase, he said, his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Now listen, this woman, Potiphar's wife, does not care about Joseph. She does not care for Joseph and what's good for him. She lusts for him, after him. Like a lion, I want you guys to picture a lion lusting after the blood of its victims. You guys have all seen the History Channel. The, the lion just tear it into the gazelle. Rawr. All right? She, this woman, is like this lion, and <clears throat> she is a picture for us today of Satan. He, Satan, lusts after the purity of his victims. That's what gets Satan excited. That's what gets Satan just out of control in a frenzy is getting God's people, God's children, to give up their purity. And this isn't just in the arena of relationships and sexual purity, but it's in every part of your life. Satan lusts for you to give up purity to him. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter picks up on this and he uses the same context of a lion for Satan. He says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He has this lustful desire to devour you. And Peter says you got to be sober and vigilant because he, he sees your purity, but he wants to get it. He wants to take it. And he knows the best way to utterly consume us is to cause us to take sin into our souls. That's what will destroy us. That's what will destroy our life. It's like the virus that Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum uploaded to the alien mothership in Independence Day. You remember? He's like, it's a virus. And they had to explain computer viruses because it was the 1990s. And nobody understood what computer viruses were. And so he's like, oh, it's like a sickness and it gives it a cold, right? Well, so they go up there, they upload the virus in the little alien ship, and then they think they're going to die. And so they're like waving at the aliens, but then they escape and save the world. Satan wants to upload a virus that is death to our inner life and our souls and our hearts. Satan wants to do that. He lusts after this destruction of souls that he can wreck. It makes him excited to devastate lives, to wreck families, to break down men's resistance until he can lead them around like an addict. You guys have seen an addict, a drug addict. They, they have been reduced to a crust of bread. Any kind of addict, it's, it, it, it ruins their life. They're like, why weren't they at the family function? Why weren't they here? Why, why didn't my dad leave? Why didn't my mom abandon us? All this destruction happens because Satan got that sin uploaded into our hearts. Satan uses temptation to get us to defile ourselves. See, Satan can't just walk around killing people. He has not been given that right. He doesn't walk around with a sword, a flaming sword, just chopping people up. Have you ever seen that? No. He gets you to do it. He has to convince us to take the poison into our own souls on our own volition, our own will. He has to convince us to take it into our own mouth and into our own soul, our own heart. 
But what does Joseph show us here? He shows us how to not do this. It says, verse 8, he refused. And he said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is, what is with me in this house, but he's committed all that he has into my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph just refuses. He realizes that he had a choice. Sin or serve God. He had a choice. And he made a choice that honored God. He has victory over temptation. People do have a choice. At the very beginning, you have a choice. You can sin or you can honor God. That's always the choice that you have. And how did Joseph get this fortitude to say no to temptation? Well, Joseph has developed a real relationship with God. He's been in the pit, and he honored God in the pit. He was working for his father, and he was concerned with his father's kingdom way back in the promised land. He, he's walked with God through pain and suffering, and so temptation now can be resisted. He, he's developed this integrity and a strength of character by clinging to God and abiding with Christ over a period of time. Over a period of time. There are no shortcuts in your relationship with God. Let me say that again. There are no shortcuts. Can you think of a single love story in any movie or book that doesn't have a challenge or trial or struggle? That's what makes every love story great. Right? Princess Bride, they fall in love. Oh. But that's like the first page of the book. That's literally the first paragraph. They fell in love. Then the rest of the whole thing is giants and inconceivable. What? <laughs> R-O-U-S's. Inconce- uh, great movie. Love that movie. Well, it's a picture for us of just all the love stories we hear. Any real relationship is built upon this struggle. Do you struggle with your ability to refuse temptation? Do you, do you give in to temptation? Don't get discouraged. Because that ability to resist, like Joseph is showing us here, like Jesus demonstrates for us in the desert, that ability to say no is developed over time. And when you fall, you need to come back to Jesus and he will build you up. That's called repentance. The first thing you learn when you come to Christ is how to repent, not to be a mighty warrior. There's a reason that we grow, start as a baby. Do you ever, has, is there ever a story of a baby leading an f- army to victory? No, that's for grown men with beards. <laughs> uh, when you fall, you come back to Jesus and he'll build you up. It's like a muscle that means built up. We have to learn to trust the Lord and to not lean upon the arm of flesh. When you first get saved, all you know is flesh. All you know is the 10-step program. All you know is my teacher said try harder. All you know is, is flesh. What can I do to make myself a better person? And faith is completely different. Walking with Jesus is completely different. Instead of that, we have to learn to trust God and his word. God and his word says when you sin, don't try harder. Come to me. And repent. Humble yourself before me, and I'll give you strength. Hang out with me. Spend time in the Word. I will change you. I look around this room, and I see a lot of people who, when when I first met you, first came into my life, you sinned, and you were just buddies. But through time, you have learned to trust in the Word, and I'm seeing great victory now in sin. You're just saying, no, get away from me. Get away from me, you lions. Because God has developed your faith muscle and it's getting strong. 
and it's awesome to see. Joseph's flesh was probably saying, it's about time something fun happened to us. But Joseph saw this for what it truly was. He knew God. He had this relationship with God so he could easily identify what was going on here today as great wickedness. That's what he described it as. And sin against God. He didn't just wake up with the ability to know that. He developed that over time. He spent time in God's word, singing songs to God, getting getting to know God, and that truth was developed in his heart over time. Sometimes uh, we want our kids to just know sin and know what's right and wrong. And you should know better by now. Don't do that. But we got to know that for them, it only comes through this relationship with God. So first we need to teach them how to have a relationship with God so that he can teach them in their hearts how to say, this is great wickedness and sin. He spent time getting familiar with God. He, had, he got to know God's heart through experience. And that is the secret to overcoming temptation. That is our great lesson for today. The secret to overcoming temptation is a living, dependent knowledge of God as your father. It's the only thing that works. Verse 10. So it was As she spoke to Joseph day by day, you should underline those, day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. See, Satan, he does not give up. You might have an an initial victory and Satan's like, oh, Joseph, well played, sir. But he's going to come back day after day because he knows there's a part in Joseph, because Satan's not stupid. He knows that there's somewhere in Joseph's heart, Joseph wants to get married. He's like, oh, I would love a wife. It would be awesome. And he's going to keep offering this simple, sinful option to him as long as he can. And that's the thing Satan does. He always gives you a sinful option. There's always a way to sin. And he'll always have it right there. Well, your flesh, you could do this. You could do this. You could do this. Oh, God's way is so difficult. It's so hard. Why don't you just do this easy thing? Satan lusts for the destruction of this man's soul. He sees Joseph. He knows that Joseph is part of this family that God has made promises to, God loves, and Satan lusts for his destruction. So she, this woman, this evil, poison bait, jail bait of Satan, comes to Joseph day after day for up to 11 years. Could you imagine having that temptation every day for 11 years. But Joseph is extremely faithful in this temptation, just like Jesus, because he pictures Jesus for us. God supernaturally, with the Holy Spirit, with the childlike faith, he gave him this faithfulness. Because Jesus was tempted by Satan as well. I mean, if Satan knew how to tempt Joseph, how much do you think Satan even learned in the next 2,000 years till he got a chance to tempt Jesus. He gave Jesus the absolute best of his ability to tempt, or worst, you could say. Jesus was able to resist those temptations by trusting his Father and the Word of God. Satan wanted to kill Jesus as well, to devour him, to make him ineffective. But Jesus knew he was on a mission, and so he was going to make it his aim to be a service to his father. Whatever his father told him to do, that's what I'm going to do, Jesus said. He was not going to give in no matter how tempting the temptation was. And Joseph, it says back in verse 10, he did not heed her to lie with her or to even be with her. Joseph shows so much wisdom, he doesn't listen to her. He knows the voice that he trusts and it's not hers. Right? Even though he may not have even heard God's voice in a while, He still knows that's not his voice. He won't even spend time with her. This is what's so wise about what Joseph does, especially alone. And husbands, we need to take note of this. It might not be your intention to have an affair. But time alone with someone of the opposite sex is so stupid. Quote me. Wives, you can use that quote too. 
Learn from Joseph's example. Learn from Jesus. He focused on ministry to men. He picked 12 men, and they were his 12 disciples. Now, there were women that were in the company, but it was never something that Jesus spent time alone with them. It just guarded his purity. He didn't even want, why give Satan a chance? I don't care how strong you are. Why give Satan a chance? So, not, uh, so men, this is the ministry of, of the model of ministry that we need to follow here at church and every church should follow is men should minister to men and women should minister to women. For the most part, that's the direction we're going to go. Not because we're scared, but because we're wise. It's not a law that we're scared of women. We should have women over here, men over here. They do that in some churches. <laughs> but we're not going to do that. Verse 11, but... It happened about this time when Joseph went to his house to do work that none of the men of the house was inside. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. So he left his garment in her hand and he ran outside, fled and ran outside. So she decides to force the issue and she touches his coat. Now this is going to blow your mind. Joseph and coats... He's had some coat issues, hasn't he? <laughs> he, yeah, obviously the coat of many colors showed the authority that his father had given to him. His brothers didn't like that, so they took the coat, ripped it up, right? Well, here, at this moment, Joseph has a choice that's even more difficult than what he went through back with his brothers. I mean, to have your brothers hate you and try to kill you is one thing. But this, I think, is even more difficult for Joseph. He has this choice, sleep with her and sin or lose his coat again. R remember that coat. This is not the first coat that's gotten Joseph into trouble. He's already understood how life can change when you lose a coat. He lost all of his freedom. He lost all of his relationship with his family when he lost his first coat. Now he's been given a new authority. He has, a, you could say, a new family. And it's in this time, this is the difference, this time it's in his hands whether he will lose the coat or not. The first time it wasn't his choice. His brothers bonked him on the head and took him. Took the coat, ripped it off him, threw him in a pit, sold him as a slave. Not his fault, okay? This time, he has a choice. It's in his hands. He could easily say, okay. And he would have kept his coat. He would have kept his authority. He would have kept his family. He would have kept his ministry. You see, Joseph loved serving. He loved the, he probably had the gift of administration, as we would call it. He, it was his gift. He was great at it. Everything he touched, he organized and did it awesome. It was his ministry. And so here, he has to choose between a ministry with a gift that's been given him by God or honoring God himself. And they're opposites. Oh, how can that be? God gave me this ministry. God gave me this gift. So obviously, I must serve the Lord with this gift at all costs. No, not at all. In this situation, Joseph has to surrender his ministry to honor God. Do you love ministry more than you love God? That's a great question for me. It's one I wrote down and I was like, hmm, Wow. At times in my life, I could say I loved ministry. When I was working at Rocky Mountain Calvary and I had a youth group that was 400 kids big. Nine, just high schoolers, 400. We had seven services a week. I was teaching the Bible every, like, and I never got tired of teaching the Bible. I loved teaching the Bible. I, I would do all those services, not a problem at all. I would never get tired. And I loved ministry. I was there all the time. On top of that, doing events, doing craziness, craziness, craziness. But, I, but huh, there came choices I had to make. 
my wife struggled, fell, and there was a point I had to choose. Am I going to keep doing ministry and cover this up, or am I going to love my wife at the time and, and give up ministry, resign? And I had to choose that, so I did. Um, walked away from the ministry for a period of years, you know, and the Lord worked things out. Dana's my wife, and we are serving the Lord with all our hearts now. And at the right time, the Lord brought ministry back. But I, she can tell you, we weren't thinking about ministry. I had given it up. I had said, okay, Lord, you've given me this gift, but what I care most about is loving you and loving my wife and loving my family. And so we focused on that first, and we built that up. And, and, at the, and it was just crazy because at a time when we were not expecting it, the Lord's like, all right, here's the ministry back again. And it was just like, wow, I did not expect it. It was amazing. But now I can look back and see the wisdom of God making sure that I loved him more than I loved ministry. And that's always dangerous for young guys, especially who are really into ministry and are really on fire for the Lord is when they say, I'll do this. This is more important than anything. And they start to give up wisdom and they start to give up truth for just being in the ministry. And the first place it shows itself is at home with their wives and their kids. That's, that's the truth. Would you run away, run away from ministry if there was sin connected to it? Wow. Jesus was willing to. Joseph exemplifies it for us. Jesus shows us he often left a city right when he was getting popular. You ever notice that? He would tell people not to talk about him. And when they wanted to come by force and make him king to go against God's plan, which is sin, he ran away from them. Literally like, get me out of here. We just wanted to make you king, dude. He's like, no, that is not God's plan right now. At a later point, I'll come as the king. Right now, I need to be your Messiah, your savior. So Joseph was willing to run away and lose the coat and be sentenced to death rather than sin, which is exactly what Jesus did too. Really cool parable, right? parallel right there. Verse 13, so it was when she saw that she, he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called the, to the men of her house and spoke to them saying, see, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me and cried out with a loud voice. And I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. And all her servants were like, yeah, right. And then she spoke to him words like these uh, when... Uh, well, she kept the garment until her master came home, and then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. So it happened when I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard these words, which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. So she makes up this lie, knowing that it will lead to the death penalty for Joseph. Obviously, she does not care about his good, right? Okay? When you have an affair, it's never love. God will never give you someone else's husband. Ever. God will never give you someone else's wife. I have heard the most bizarre justifications for sin when it comes to relationships. <laughs> and they're like, God wants us to do this because my husband's a jerk. And it's not true. That is not what God ever does. He will begin something in purity. Now, maybe your own relationship, maybe you're sitting here next to the person who, and it begun in sin. Does that mean God is done with you and wants you to divorce your wife right here, right now? There is healing and there is forgiveness. But you've got to come to the Lord and acknowledge your sin and say, this was not right. Okay? Obviously, she did not care about his good. Potiphar gets angry 
at this whole situation. But notice that it does not say that Potiphar got angry at Joseph, does it? It just says he got angry. And I think it's really obvious. Well, we'll read verse 20 first. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So I believe this verse shows us that he really wasn't mad at Joseph because he didn't kill him. This offense was an automatic death penalty. But Potiphar's like, eh, I don't want to kill you. Because Potiphar knew his wife. You can't live with someone that long and not know them. He was mad that she forced him to lose his best helper and forced him to send his best blessing to prison. He liked Joseph better than her. But to save face, he has to go. He knew she was lying because he knew Joseph. And I'm sure that he trusted Joseph more than he trusted his wife. But now, because of all the false witnesses, he has to reject the only one that's been faithful. And he knew that Joseph was blameless. And he has to condemn him. Does that remind you of anyone? Blameless, being condemned, even though they know he's innocent. All right, you can think about that. But the Lord, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatever they did there, it was his doing. And the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. So Joseph gets thrown into prison for doing what's right. Wow, God must be really unreliable and really untrustworthy if that's what happens to his servants. You ever hear that? Well, if I serve God, he'll send me to Africa and I'll die of Ebola. How many people have we talked to that think the same way? God is untrustworthy because I tried to serve him and then bad things happened to me. How many times have I thought, why should I follow God if this is what I get? We must stop living as merely men, fleshly men, carnal thinkers. Just because something bad happens does not mean that God is against you. But it takes maturity to recognize that, right? It might just be the very sign that God is with you and trusts you with a special trial. Special forces like Navy SEALs are never disappointed when they're chosen for the most difficult missions. They're super excited. I get to show off my aim. They understand it's their calling, their purpose, their job, their duty, their role. We are chosen and commissioned as servants of God. His children, his, his missionaries, his army. Our life belongs to him. He's the right to spend your life as he pleases. What is God commanding you to do? What mission are you on? Sometimes you're like, I don't know. Well, what trials have happened in your life? That's a huge key. It shows what mission you're on. Ah, oh, something happened to me that's totally unfair. Anyone ever had anything unfair happen to them? Never. I deserved it all. No, sometimes life is just unfair. But we got to recognize those things and say, okay, what is God wanting me to do here? All right, marriage troubles. God must want me to learn about the essence of relationships and loving, patience, kindness, apologizing, humility. So much we can learn about relationships. That's why we have marriage troubles, because God is saying, I want you to get better at relationships. Here's one relationship that will give you the full gauntlet of troubles. Marriage. And when you pass that, you get kids. More 
college-level troubles. And God is saying, I want you to serve me with skill in relationships. It could be your marriage, it could be your job, your family, your community. Where is the troubles in your life? That's where God is focused. That's where God wants you to work. But we aren't responsible to complete these missions in our own strength, by our own ability, which is great because we don't have any abilities or strength. We don't have any spiritual resources to accomplish these special missions. You look at your trial and you're like, that's too big for me. God's like, I know. I made it that way to get you to realize you don't have it. So come to me and ask me and I will give it. That is called grace. That is what we talk about every week here. And I'm sure you get kind of annoyed, but I'm not going to stop ever teaching about grace because it's all that we need. It is God's promise that he will supply what we need for life and good works through the person and spirit of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me define that for you again. I worked really hard on that definition, stealing it from Bob Hoekstra. God's promise, grace is God's promise that he will supply all that you need for life and good works through his son, the person and spirit of his son, Jesus Christ. Look how that is shown to us in these verses, these last verses of Genesis chapter 39. Remember the formula that we always talk about when it comes to grace. What is it, Scott? Humility and faith get grace, right? How do we get this grace? How do we access this grace? Humility and faith. We do this because Scott and I do one-on-one discipleship through the week, which I encourage you all to do. We have a packet called Growing in Grace, which will teach you these things. And the biggest thing we learn in that is the formula that the Bible gives, that humility and faith will get you grace. God's promise fulfilled in your life that he'll give you everything that you need for life and good works. And the humility part of it comes from James 4, 6, where it says God gives grace to the humble. And the faith part of it comes from Romans 5, 2, where he says we have access into this grace in which we stand by faith. It's very simple. We have access and God's giving it. It's how he works. He wants to work in your life through this grace. But look how, it, how it's played out for us in these verses with Joseph. See, this is a consistent teaching through all the Bible. God is always a God of grace. He's never this mean, cranky God of the Old Testament that we think. That's later, and, and that's not uh, the reality of the situation. He's always this God of grace. And look, it showed out to us here in Genesis 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Skipping down to 23, because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. See, the Lord was with Joseph. This is the faith side of the equation. And I'll explain it to you. The Lord was with Joseph. That speaks of presence, relationship, source. When my kids see me in a pool, the first thing they did, they do, they like to do, is say, catch me, and they jump. They don't even say, catch me sometimes. They just jump. Assuming, even if they can't swim a lick, but they were very encouraged and emboldened by my presence in the pool. A childlike trust and dependence is shown and grown by presence. Joseph learned that God was there, and he trusted that God was there. And so Joseph is living this life of faith. Even though he can't see God and all the circumstances of his, of his life, blah, 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 all the circumstances of his life show him that God is not there. But yet his faith says, I believe that God is there. I mean, he gets thrown in a pit, gets out, now he's a slave, now he's in jail. Circumstances are not proving God's point here. But God doesn't need to be proven. God says, I'm with you, Joseph, and I love you. And Joseph says, I believe it. No matter what happens to me in cancer, bring it. 
You want me to get fired? I'm in. Because I know that you're with me. See, Hebrews says those who come to God must believe that he is and that he's a warder of those who diligently seek him. So this believing that he's just there is a huge part of faith and that he's going to be faithful to his promises. Now, the second part is when it says the Lord showed him mercy. This speaks of the humility side of our equation. Got our faith side over here, our humility side. The Lord showing him mercy is not getting what he deserves. You know, Joseph didn't deserve divine help. He was a sinner just like the rest of us. But God wants to make an example of him. He wants us to know that he's a merciful God who desires to show mercy. What is the natural relationship with mercy? Humility. When you show mercy to someone, the typical response is, oh, I don't deserve that. I'm, I'm humbled that you would treat me with such mercy. I've seen the most hardcore gangsters in a courtroom and the judge says, mercy. And they're just like, oh, thank you, bro. And it's just like this response of humility and you're like, wow. Because humility is the response of mercy. When we recognize and focus on God's mercy, we are growing in humility. When we let a fleshly attitude grow in our hearts that God has to help us or we deserve a better life or I'm able to get out of this without trusting in God, we are not growing in humility and we're standing against the work of God in our life. Especially that we deserve a better life one. How many times have you thought that? Have I thought that? Oh, my life is so difficult. If I only had a better one. The third thing we see is the Lord gave him favor. First, we saw the Lord was with Joseph, speaking of faith. Second, we saw the Lord showed him mercy, speaking of humility. And now we see the Lord gave him favor. And giving is always the language of grace. Always given. Grace is always given. It's never earned. Wages are earned. That's the language of the law, which we are clearly free from. The New Testament goes to lengths to explain to us that you are free from the law. You are not earning this favor. It is something that is given to the humble, faithful child. Joseph is free from the law as well. In fact, the law hasn't even been given yet. It's still a couple hundred years away. Grace is this gift from God himself where he supplies our need. And God's grace is all you need. And grace is always available, always available for everything in your life. And we see that in the part where it says, whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. See, God wanted grace to be a lifestyle, not an event, and not many events, but a complete lifestyle of dependence. This is the coolest thing about grace. It applies to everything you do. It changes everything you do. It blesses everything you do. It removes the curse and instead allows your father to shower you with blessings. See, God is real and active in 2016 in Denver, Colorado, and he cares about your life, your stuff, your situations, and he wants to make it prosper. Imagine God's blessings as a waterfall, a waterfall just falling from heaven, just Niagara Falls of blessings. Just He just loves pouring out his blessings. It's a constant flow from God's heart. When we choose, when we choose, when we choose faith and humility, not when we do better, not when we get to church more, not when we're more faithful. No, when we choose faith and humility, we are placing ourselves under that waterfall of blessing. Just like, ah, oh, just being deluged with blessing. And that is the life God intends for you. Spiritual, emotional, wholeness, soundness, and blessing to be consistent in your life. And it's your choice whether humility and faith are going to be the attitudes of your heart. See, God's relation, our relationship with God is not based on works anymore. It's based on the heart and relationship with him. And the only real relationship with him is humility and faith. Everything else is a false relationship. It's messed up. When you think, 
well, I deserve God's help. I'm pride, and uh, that's the opposite of what God's doing. And doubt, saying God isn't going to help someone like me, or you don't even know God's promises. That's not humility and faith. Our God is so consistent in his unfailing love. You see, our, the practical outflowing that God loves you is his favor or grace in our lives. He will never fail to give us grace. This is his promise, not my trying to get you to change or anything like that. I just want us all to understand that God set it up this way because he flippin' loves you. And he knows you don't have it. And he's willing to give it. And so he says, you know what? My unfailing love will not fail you either. Trust me and humble yourself before me and receive my love. And everything you do will prosper. You will have my blessings in your life. So here's the key. The secret to God blessing everything we do is to stop caring about the blessings and just, become, just come to your Father in humility and faith consistently, and you will be blessed. Such a great thing. And that is where we wrap up our study today. Finishing chapter 39, we get into chapter 40 next week. So this week, as we go along throughout our days, I want us to focus and I challenge you to remember humility and faith each day. Am I... Am I growing in humility and am I growing in faith? And just see where that takes you and see if you don't see God's blessings just automatically pouring in your life. Can I tell your story real quick, Norm? No, I told people to ask you. It fits. Go ask Norm about his awesome story of being blessed by God. Sometimes God's blessings can open doors. We'll say that.